Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Been a while since I've done one of these, but I was able to have a Skype call with somebody I've been wanting to interview for a long time. His name is Brian Mahan. He is a somatic experiencing practitioner. And I met Brian when I went to see him in 2016. I was not a well woman. I was having some real dysregulation in my nervous system uh, caused by stress and trauma and things. And uh, anyway, he helped me a lot. And ever since then, I've been sort of fascinated with what he does. He's also been doing a lot of work around the subject of shame. So this is a little bit of a different conversation for this podcast, but um, it's one that I hope you will enjoy. So uh, before we get to that, I want to get a mention in for our virtual game nights that we've been doing. Uh, You Don't Know My Life. I've been hosting a game night online almost every night. So groups of friends will sort of get themselves together and then book me. And then I facilitate it like a game show. And Jeb or my friend Felix runs a board. We have a board that shows up on Zoom. Anyway, it's it's been great. And if you have a birthday and you're like, I'm, a, I'm bummed out, I can't see any of my friends, something like that, this is a great way to get the game together. And uh, you can learn more about that at youdon'tknowmylife.com. And um, I'd love to host a party for you. So there's that. And now on to the interview. Here is Brian Mahan. All right, I'm talking via Skype to someone that I've wanted to interview for a very long time. Brian Mahan, he is a somatic experiencing practitioner. And I learned what somatic experiencing is a few years ago when I was going through some stuff. And I came to see you and you helped me a lot. So it's nice to see you. How are you coping with the... Um, with the uh, you know, being home all the time and, and, and everything that's going on in the world. How are, how are you managing? Well, first of all, good to see you. You too. <laughs> My hair is a disaster. I haven't done the shave yet that a lot of people are doing, but I feel like it's coming. Yeah. It's only, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because initially um, I didn't, really notice much of a difference because I have been social distancing for years. Right. I'm kind of a bit of a homebody. Um, I work at home. I work out at home. My friends want to come to my home. Right. Um, so, you know, I have a, I have a, uh, you know, my car, I live, live in Los Angeles, obviously. Right. And um, I put 7,000 miles on my car in three years. Wow. Okay. You so are that's how homebody. homebody I am. Nice. All right. That's a good thing. So you're, you're managing well. So, yeah, so it wasn't that big of a difference initially, right? Because I've also been seeing uh, clients via video for well over 10 years. I've got clients all over the world. So nothing really seemed to change. But then there was just this kind of, you know, low grade boil that was happening that I think a lot of people are experiencing right now. And, um, you know, so over the last couple of few weeks, things have definitely been um, a little bit more challenging for me than they were the first couple of few weeks. I hear you. I, I relate to that. Can you describe for the listeners what exactly is somatic experiencing? Sure. Um, somatic experiencing is a short-term naturalistic approach to fully resolving developmental and shock trauma. The big difference is, is that um, the, the traditional talk therapy is that we look at trauma as primarily a physiological uh, condition rather than a psychological disorder. And so the idea is, is that any kind of trauma, whether it's developmental trauma or shock trauma, um, occurs, the, the wounding experience actually occurs in the body, right? And one of the reasons why we think that trauma is uh, physiological, more so than psychological, is that we can become traumatized, pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, and pre-conceptual. So if we can be traumatized before we can think and reason, right. then obviously there's another system at play, and that's the lower brain and the autonomic nervous system. Yeah. And so somatic experiencing looks at lower brain function, which is, you know, the freeze, flight, fight. Right. That people know, talk about. That we talk about. But there's also two other Fs, fornicate and feed. Oh, so those, those are two are of my all... favorite Fs. <laughs> so um, that's oftentimes why there's dysregulation around food and sex as a result of traumatic experiences. Interesting. Um, yeah. So it's one of our coping strategies, coping mechanisms, you know, oftentimes can show up around... Um, you know, sex, sexuality, sensuality, um, human engagement, and um, and food. Um, so yeah, so you know, we uh, work with um, 
getting clients kind of back into state, into these old wounds, um, uh, so that we can then act, you know, get the, get the nervous system engaged again. And once the nervous system is, is engaged, then we help facilitate the process of that arousal to discharge so that the nervous system, nervous system can then reorganize and return to homeostasis and become resilient again. Because a lot of times what happens from trauma is our nervous systems get dysregulated. It's like having a short circuit in an electrical system. Yeah, when I saw you, I had been going through a pretty rough period where I had a lot of stuff going on in my body related to stress and things that had happened or whatever. But it wasn't until I started treating it like trauma as opposed to anxiety and depression that I started getting answers and getting help because it really was my nervous system. It wasn't things I was thinking consciously. It was what was going on in my body. And I would get an email about something related to all of this stuff and my body would, it would happen in my legs. And so once I started seeing you and there were a few other pieces of the puzzle that came together, I started to improve, but it was a, it was a dodgy time. How did you get into this work? What was your uh, entry experience? Yeah, um, I got into the work as a client originally. Yeah. Uh, I suffered from a catastrophic car wreck where I was on the 10 freeway four nights before Christmas in 2003. And um, two cars were racing on the freeway, like out of the movie Fast and Furious. And one of the cars blew by, blew by me. The second car clipped me. And my car went end over end, oh rolled three times across three lanes of traffic, slid on the driver's door 150 feet and crashed into a concrete wall. Wow. And that was seven o'clock at night, four nights before Christmas. So Christmas shoppers were out. And the crazy thing was, is that no other cars were involved. Just you. So it was just for me. And I walked away from it. I mean, I had some road rash on my shoulder, my elbow from when I was being dragged across the ground when I, the driver's window had busted out and, you know, the car was sliding on the driver's door at one point. Um, and I had a little whiplash. But other than that, you know, I, I went home afterwards, you know, after the SIG alert was cleared and wow. I didn't even go to the hospital or anything because I thought I was relatively unscathed. And then several days later, I started having full-blown panic attacks. But I didn't know there were panic attacks, and I didn't attribute it to car wreck. Right. You didn't, because you, know? you don't necessarily connect those dots. Yeah, because I walked away. Right. right. You you were and lucky. Was, you know, yeah. yeah it it could have been so much later. worse. All right. Yeah. And so, you know, I spent several days in the living room floor in the fetal position, howling at the moon, um, thinking I was either going crazy or I had become possessed. And so eventually I was able to peel myself off the floor and get across town to my chiropractor. And I went in and asked her if I could get a referral. And she said, what's going on? And I said, well, I think I need an exorcist. <laughs> yeah, well, right. <laughs> she's, she's like, honey, what's happening? <laughs> so I told her what it, what, it, what it happened. And she said, oh, I think you need a trauma specialist. And so she sent me to a somatic experiencing practitioner. And in three sessions, my panic attack stopped. Wow, so it was like one of your first steps. It wasn't something you tried this and this and this and this and this. Oh, I had done 25 years prior to the car wreck trying to heal. Right. Right. I went to every guru and witch doctor in Kahuna I could find. I read every book except for the one on self-sabotage that I never finished. <laughs> um, I, you know, I tried every pill, potion, and powder. I went to every workshop and seminar. I was trying desperately to try to heal for 25 years and just couldn't seem to... to to, to put all the pieces together, right? And then somatic experiencing kind of unlocked the missing link. And that was the physiology. Right. right? And how that all plays out. You know, one thing I want to pull, I want to circle back to what you said a minute ago is that, you know, you were saying the anxiety that you were going through, you could tell was in your body, but wasn't really in your thoughts. But one thing we have to remember, two things actually with that, is that um, our, we feel everything that we think right and we think about everything that we feel so it is a two-way street and somatic experiencing isn't just physiologically physiological we do have to also take into account the psychology and the narrative and all of that because the psychological component is how we handle things and compartmentalize things and reframe things or try to reframe things over time you know and so um so both pieces so they go so they go together yeah. But yeah, yeah but, absolutely. but my my thing, there was a real physiological component 
that I, right. until and I started seeing you, I wasn't really directing. Yeah. And no amount of mental gymnastics. Right. I, you couldn't, I couldn't think my way out of it. Physiological. So in terms of the treatment, I mean, just for lay people listening, how tactile is it? Are, is there a physical component? Is it anything like you would do with massage or Reiki or any of those kinds of things? Right. Touch can be incorporated. Right. Um, but it's not a necessary part of the process. In fact, you know, I have been working via video for, you know, over 10 years. So there was no touch involved in any of those sessions, right. you know, but we're not, we're not but doing the uh, actors, you know, when I'm working with someone remotely and I feel like touch um, would be beneficial for them, I'll have them bring somebody safe into the session and then I'll instruct that person how to apply touch and, you know, uh, work with them in that way. How long ago was the car wreck? How long, how long have you been into this? Uh, it was December 21st, 2003. Wow, quite a long time. Yeah, um, so and you mentioned in your answer, you're talking about 25 years of healing. That isn't from the wreck. That's other. No, other that was things. just my own personal quest. Right. Your own. Because you know? I had, like everybody, I had developmental trauma stuff, you know. Um, and I had shock trauma stuff. You know, I mean, it's hard to, to get through life um, without having trauma, right? Yeah. You know, and listen, if I if I may, real quick, just to help everybody kind of understand too the difference in how and how I'm talking about trauma. There's a difference between stress and trauma, and it's a nervous system response. When we're facing threat of any kind, any kind of stressor, if our nervous system is able to go into arousal, into activation, to deal with that stressor, and then find its own natural peak and then begin to unwind and discharge that arousal right. and return to homeostasis and resilience, we consider that event stressful. If for any reason the nervous system is not able to complete that process, then we consider that event traumatic. And so that's why any two humans in the same location at the same time carrying out the same behavior can have two completely different experiences. One can be traumatized by it, and one can be stressed by it. Right. That's interesting. There's a difference between those those two things. Now, my memory that you was you once told me you came to L.A. to be an actor. Was that yeah. part of your journey? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was a, you know, I had, I think at the time of the car wreck, I decided to take a bit of a break from the business, as it were. Right. Um, but yeah, I was an actor for a long time, you know, classically trained, best school in the country, in New York City, the whole thing. Fun. Does that training ever come out in your work? Well, you know, does it ever I mean, resonate? I it because I teach. Yeah. And, you know, I do videos for, you know, I do a lot of content um, that I put up for, you know, on, YouTube, on my YouTube channel and that kind of thing. Um, you know, just kind of educational stuff so that people can get a better understanding of what somatic experiencing is. So, you know, being in front of the camera, doing interviews like this, right. um, holding, my own, holding my own webinars, holding classes, um, it certainly helps with that, for sure. There you go. You've um, been doing a lot of work around shame lately, is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's really been a major um, turning point for me. You know, for 10, 12 years, I was working as a somatic experiencing practitioner. I felt like I had healed you know, dramatically, it was just, you know, I look at my car wreck as like BC and AD. I was a different human being before that car wreck than, than I am now. And I attributed that a great deal to somatic experiencing and the healing journey that I went on through this process. And then about five years ago, I watched a webinar um, given by Brett Lyon and Sheila Rubin from the Center for Healing Shame. And it was like a Helen Keller moment for me, Dennis. It was like everything came together. Wow, you were you know, like, when heard, okay. When I heard the word shame, I was like, oh, oh, that's it. That's what I've been struggling with. That's what I see happening with my clients, and I didn't know how to work with it and what to do with it and how to help them transmute it, and, you know. And I immediately went to the next training, you know. And they have stuff in Berkeley. And so I flew up to Berkeley. I went to the training and it was just, it, you know, it was the missing piece and the missing link, <laughs> you know, somatic experiencing was the missing link. And then um, healing shame was kind of like the missing piece. Right. right? And, um, and so I started taking their trainings. There's, uh, they have about nine or 10 trainings now, um, but they have a certification program for people in the field on how to effectively uh, work with toxic shame and how, or how to effectively work with healthy shame and how to effectively heal 
toxic shame because there's two different things. We actually, we want shame. We want healthy shame. Otherwise, we'll all be sociopaths right. and there'd be no rule of law. Um, but toxic shame is a whole other thing because, you know, it um, can completely shut us down. And, you know, we can isolate. And, um, you know, there's just, there's so many ramifications of the devastation that toxic shame can hold in our lives. And so after um, I went through their training, I then approached them one day and told them that they needed an assistant and that it was going to be me. They needed to hire you, <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> no, I volunteered. I continued right. to go up and I took the trainings. They're, they're almost monthly. And so for four years, I flew up to Berkeley on my own dime and assisted their trainings. And um, then somewhere along the way, after a couple of years of that, I pulled them aside and I said, hey, um, I want to teach this work. I want to be the first person to teach your work. And so um, that's where things are now. So I started teaching their first, I taught my first class in October here in Los Angeles. And then uh, extenuating circumstances, holidays, all that kind of thing. And then COVID. So you yeah. know, it's, it's now trying to figure out how to transition or when we'll be able to you know, continue teaching classes live. How do you define the word shame in terms of the context of your work? Great question. Okay. Because I so, think we all have um, a sort of idea of what that feels like. Certainly times when we felt it, but using that word, what does it mean in your work? Right. Well, let's look at healthy shame and toxic shame. So um, toxic shame is anything that gives us the experience of um, there's something wrong with me. I'm bad. I'm different. I don't belong. I'm a loser. Right. It's all that self-loathing inner critic self-talk. Right. But that but those messages originate from the outside world. Yeah. Um, and then healthy shame is um, the understanding that we are flawed and we're not perfect and that it's okay. Right. So, um, you know, children, and, you know, and we look at shame as actually being the linchpin of developmental trauma. And developmental trauma is anything that occurs from in utero through the birth process to about 10 or 12 years old. That's what we look at as the developmental stage. Right. Um, and so anything that um, happens in that developmental stage that gives the child the experience of being less than or unequal to or not belonging, not fitting in or being wrong or bad. And a child can't differentiate between their behavior and themselves. And so if you were to say to a child, ooh, gross, don't pick your nose, that's nasty. What they're hearing is you're gross and nasty. Right. And so they internalize that as there's something wrong with them. It's not that there's something wrong with the behavior. Right. So a lot of times we think about healthy shame as being more behavioral oriented and toxic shame being more character oriented. Interesting. Now, do you deal with a lot of LGBT people around that area? Because I think a lot of us grew up speaking oh for my myself God. with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, well, first of all, shame is ubiquitous, all right? It's used in every tribe throughout the world since the beginning of time to socialize children, protect the tribe, and establish hierarchy. So it's just part of the human condition, right? Right. Then, you know, we add into the mix something like, you know, homosexuality or, you know, trans, and there's this internalized sense of there is something so completely wrong and bad about me that makes me so completely different than anyone else that I know. Because as we're growing up, we don't really, well, different now than right. uh, when I was coming up, right? But, you know, there, there wasn't any point of reference for me. I just knew that I was so very different. And I got from all the social cues that um, it could very well turn my own family against me. And so one of the shame responses is to withdraw. Right. And so, you know, I did a massive, and you know, withdrawal and just, you know, and went into a high state of dissociation as a way to protect myself, you know, which included having a monotone whisper voice, being dead behind the eyes, flat affect, very little emotional expression, didn't talk with my hands. I did everything I could to disappear because I didn't want anybody to discover my secret. Interesting. And yet you wanted to pursue acting. 
which is being that something else. That was the one place that I could emote without uh, consequence. Yeah. Or negative consequence. Right. That's part of the job. That's part of the and gig. And it was the one place I didn't have to be me. Yeah. Right. Because in my developmental trauma in general, you know, my, my parents did everything that they could to try to raise me and my brothers as if we were fifth generation, blue blooded, well-bred Southern gentlemen. Right. The problem is, is that they didn't have a reference point for that because they both grew up in horrible circumstances with, you know, in poverty. Right. And so their effort to try to raise us in that way meant that they course corrected our every single thought, word and action. Right. They were trying to make you into this other thing. Exactly. And so it was an act of love. Right. Right. But what they were doing was shaming us. I, you know, I kind of joke that I grew up in the in the house of shame, halfway between the house of blues and the house of pancakes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know, what I learned from all of that was there wasn't anything that I could say well enough, right? Because my diction, my vocabulary, you know, all everything was course corrected, and I couldn't do anything well enough every behavior was commented on and so i learned there wasn't anything good about me yeah there's nothing to show i have nothing i don't i don't have a, a strength or anything that i can even like lean into right. so i learned to become a chameleon right so when i was with my mom i became my mom yeah and when i was with my dad i became my dad because that was the only way that i could learn that i felt like i could find that sense of belonging yeah right and that's ultimately, and kind of circle back, I hope this isn't too confusing, but um, when we were talking about the definition of shame, um, shame is an inherent sense of there's something wrong with me and I don't fit in and I don't belong. Right. And when we're in the experience of feeling shame, because shame comes from the outside world, it does not self-generate originally. It's not like original sin. You know, we come into the world with the ability to feel shame. We don't come into the world in shame. Right. And so when we're being shamed, our fear is the fear of death because as children we're 100 percent dependent upon our caretakers and others for our survival right and if we break that interpersonal bridge if we lose favor then we run the risk of being shunned cast out abandoned or neglected yeah and so we will do absolutely anything in our power to maintain that relational attachment. Now, what was your school? What were your school days like? Were Were you bullied, or were you, how'd you do with that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, my last name is Mayhan, so they changed it to Gayhan. It's always good when there's a long A. It's just a shortcut. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, and I think that other kids had a better understanding of who I was than I was. Right. Sometimes they see right. things that you don't in a way. Yeah. There was so much self-denial Yeah. and yet obviously it was coming out in behavior. And so that was another reason why I stilted my behavior. Right. I try, you know, when I, when I was one-on-one -on -one with somebody, I became a chameleon. When I was in a group, I had to become invisible. Right. Right. But I also learned from all those cues not to use my hands, not to have a facial expression, not to be emotional. Watch my sibilant S's. Oh, yeah. You know, I had the sibilant of, S thing, too. Yeah, all yeah, of that all stuff. Of those when you started as a patient being treated with somatic experiencing, when was the moment where you clicked, oh, I kind of want to be in this world. I want to I wanna help people in this way. When, when did that shift? After my third session, my panic attack stopped. Right. And within two weeks, I was in the training. Wow. Was that quick? It was that fast. What was it like when you started the training? Was it just like an intoxication of like this world that was so interesting and meaningful? Absolutely. Yeah. But remember, I was also highly dissociative. Right. I didn't have the agency for um, social engagement in group. And I, and, um, I also had this extraordinary shame in the training that I wasn't a talk therapist, I wasn't a PhD, and this work at the time was taught primarily to talk therapists. Right, right. all of these so, other people have already done all this other groundwork, and here I am just kind of coming in late, I guess, in a way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, honestly, originally, back in the day, um, 
my understanding was, and I could be wrong because again, I was so dissociative. My memory isn't really good about sure. a lot of the past. Um, but my memory is, is that it was only taught to talk therapists and body workers. And at the time I had been, instead of an actor waiter, I was an actor massage therapist. Okay. And so I, it was that's in how that. I was able to take the training yeah. is because I was a body worker. Right. Um, but I was still the dumb kid in the room. What did the people in your life think when you started pursuing this? They were like, what is this? What did, you know, did. Oh yeah. 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 There, you know, even to this day, yeah. you know, the question that I really, you know, kind of, uh, you know, get ruffled about if I'm in a social situation, somebody asks me what I do. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Cause, Did you try to explain cause it? Because I have to explain so much, you know, and then it becomes a conversation about that. And then it's no longer about the human engagement and maybe, you know, somebody at a bar or at a dinner yeah. party or somebody I'm attracted to. And then it just becomes this completely cerebral, um, you know, thing. And I'm just getting interviewed and so it's weird. You know, yeah. It's really weird, but it, yeah, it's, it's hard to explain. It takes some time and people are fascinated by it. I love talking about it, but you know, in some social situations, I wish I didn't have to. So it's easier for me now to just kind of say, I, you know, I specialize in working with developmental trauma with a focus on healing shame. And that's Boom. usually enough to make people go, oh, I don't want to talk anymore about that. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Shutting you down. I got it. I'm good. That's good. That's good. Um, I remember sort of watching clips on your website and, and, and there were things you were saying that I'm like, I think this might be something that could help me. For people that are that, that, that could really benefit from this kind of thing, what are the things, how might they, what are the things that, that people might look about in themselves and say, oh, I think this is a good candidate for this kind of work. Right. Well, um, in, in, in brief, anytime you have a cycle, a pattern, a habituation in your life, that's indicative of an early wounding experience. And that early wound is still trying to get resolved. And so what happens is we have a wounding experience in that wounding experience, we uh, try to figure out highly creative ways to deal with a nearly impossible situation. So we we figure out defenses and coping mechanisms and survival strategies, which oftentimes are happening when we're three and four and five years old. Right. So these are, you know, um, behaviors and ways of dealing with things that we're we're setting up at a time when we don't have a lot of life experience or intelligence. And yet these can last a whole lifetime. Right. You can start something up. Yeah. So I'm always joking that, you know, I'm 55 years old. I don't want to act like a five-year-old, but that's what most people are doing because so much of our behavior, so much of our personality is set up as a result of wounding experiences when we were young. So we have this wounding experience. We, We figure out defenses and coping mechanisms and survival strategies to manage it at the time. Then there's also the internalized Um, instinctual response of needing to ensure that we're prepared if this were to ever happen again in the future. So we form beliefs around the wounding experience. Now, the beliefs can be about ourselves. It can also be about the perpetrator or the situation. So then the belief is like a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it's there to try to scan the horizon to make sure that if anything similar looks like it's coming down the pike, yeah, we're trying to learn from the past to avoid it. But quantum physics and mechanics teaches us that we have a tendency to find what we look for. Mm. And so in as much as we're scanning the horizon to try to avoid it, we actually end up being drawn to it and it being drawn to us. And so that's where the habituation, the reenactment shows up. So the reenactment the, or the habituation actually is an opportunity that is oftentimes missed. The opportunity is to track and trace back to the original wound. Because if we can get enough reorganization around the original wounding experience and we can have reparative and corrective experiences around the current reenactment, all of that's going to call into question the veracity of those old beliefs. Right. Then the belief can shift and change. And here's the crazy thing. Nothing changes until our beliefs do. Interesting. And so the belief has to change in order for the reenactment, the pattern, the habituation to change. 
But no amount of mental gymnastics is enough to change a belief. Then how do you change it? It changes on its own when we heal the original wound and have reparative and corrective experiences in our present day around the reenactment. Right. Because, because you know, then all of that's calling into question that old belief. And then we can form a new belief based on our current experience and our current age and our current intelligence and our right. current life experience, which, you know, is what we call maturing. Yeah. One of the books that I read during the time when I met you was one, uh, I think it's called The Body Knows the Score or Keeps the Score, mm-hmm. which you probably familiar with. But for a long time, I realized I didn't express anger. I just skipped it. Right. And what I realized a bit through this process was, was that it doesn't just disappear. It goes yeah. somewhere. Yes, if it's not expressed externally, it gets expressed internally. And I, th- and I was like, oh, that felt like a light bulb moment to me. Like, oh, it doesn't just not exist. So you can't pretend right. that it does with whatever that emotion is. And I think that right. was a mistake I made for a long time was, was not, not expressing it in any way. Right. Yeah. In any way, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really really important and profound piece right here that I'd love to kind of like take a moment and slow down with this because this is such a quintessential piece that so many people struggle with. Shame is the underpinning of every emotion. Okay. You know, when we're children, we get shamed for crying. We get, you know, big boys don't cry, right? Um, Man up, you know, all that kind of stuff. We get shamed around being vulnerable. That's for wussies. That's for weak people. Yeah. Um, we get shamed around our sadness. We get shamed around our anger, right? Uh, and we develop beliefs around all of our emotions, right? right? And those beliefs are oftentimes based in shame. And so we have to kind of tease the two apart. And, you know, if we look at, it, at an emotion like anger, all emotions are on a scale, right? Right. And... Uh, we live in a polarized universe, and so everything is polarized, both in the external environment of the world around us and the internal environment of everything that exists within us. Right. And so anger, in its polarity, on the positive end of uh, anger is what we call healthy aggression. Right. And healthy aggression is the energy of self-preservation, self-care. It's the energy that we use to set boundaries and protect them. Yeah, it's it's the energy of discipline and drive and dedication and chutzpah and get up and go and embodiment and empowerment. Now, on the opposite end of that scale is homicidal rage and suicidal ideation. Yeah. Now, when we express anger, our fear, well, I should say our fear of expressing anger is our fear of annihilation. Because we learn that if we express anger, we hurt someone. Or if we express anger, we get pushed back, we get punished, right? And so the shame is uh, one of the one of the functions of shame is to lower affect, right? And so um, if we're expressing anger and then we get shamed for expressing that anger, our system shuts shuts down, right? Um, and if anger, and so if healthy aggression is self-care and self-preservation, then the opposite um, polarity is, um, you know, uh, uh, you know um, self-harm. Right. So when anger is not expressed externally, it gets expressed internally, and so it moves to self-harm. Yeah. Um, I realized something a few years ago, and I'm just going to share it with you and see how this ties into your thing. I realized that I was going through my life, I like a list, a to-do list, and I had a number one that I didn't know was there, but it was always there, which was just don't upset anybody. Mm. And I realized, oh, that's been on my to-do list my entire life. That's the number, (laughs) almost number one. Like, I would, I remember being at an ATM and I had two transactions to do, like this check and then I have to do this thing to this other account. And as I was standing there, and I did my first one, there was people behind me. And I actually thought, I'll get out of line and get back in line and then do the other one. And I'm like, that is so nuts. Nobody does that. But that was my instinct. That's what my, whatever that early thing was, was like, get out, you know, like, like not be there. Yeah, it was well, really that's, interesting. That, that's shame. That's shame. Yeah. Don't, don't exist. You know, we have four main reactions to shame. Okay. Attack self. Okay. Attack other. Okay. Withdraw okay. and deny. 
And what you were doing was moving into what we call the realm of denial, right? I don't really matter. They matter more. Yes. Right? And it's also uh, moving into fun and cling. So, you know, let me ingratiate myself to these strangers behind me so that they will think well of me. They will think I'm a good boy. Right, rather than me taking up their time because I don't deserve to exist and I don't deserve to take the time to do what I need to do. They matter more. Yeah. And so that's an absolute shame response. But what's interesting about me is I feel like I have healthy self-esteem. I think I'm pretty great. So I don't mm-hmm. think I'm, I don't think I'm bad. I just think I need to be out of their way or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah you know, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, I come up against this a lot with shame. I will have, you know, I'll have a client and work, you know, working with and something will happen and I go, you know, I, I, I think actually if, first time client I'm thinking about, um, she came in, we're talking, she's saying some very kind of self-deprecating you know, self-loathing kind of statements. And, you know, I kind of listened to her for a while and I said, you know, I think maybe one of the really underlying issues here is shame. And she was like, what? Like, I don't have any shame. What are you talking about? I don't have shame. I just need you to help me stop berating myself. (laughs) 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 Right? The word shame and the, 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 the study of shame, um, wasn't even in the entire field of study of psychology. It's relatively recent. It's relatively recent. At least as a layperson hearing people talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So just in the last several years, you know, or not even several, but well, I guess several. Brene Brown's been around for a bit. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, she's the one that kind of brought it into the vernacular. And when she told her bosses she wanted to start researching shame, they told her it would be the end of her career. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah, and therapists have an enormous amount of their own shame. They also have a tendency to shame their clients because they don't know what it is. Shame is overt and it's covert, right? So you have um, what we call defenses around your shame, which is that sense of, um, you know, confidence and I like me and I'm good. And, you know, that might be, might be a little bit of a defense to help you disconnect from the shame that you actually feel. Right. Well, it certainly feels like it's at odds with it. It doesn't quite add up yeah. in our heads. Um, right. Because you're well, sitting there going, at, I don't at, hate let's myself. Look at, let's look at an extreme example of this. Yeah. Okay. Narcissism. The wound, and we can think of one person in particular, sure. perhaps in a political landscape right now, um, that we can use as an example without, right. without you know, he who shall not be named. Right. Um, but, you know, a malignant narcissist, the grandiosity, the puffing, the, right. you know, the inability to accept responsibility for anything at all, right. et cetera, et cetera. All of that is the defense against the toxic shame. Yeah. Right? Which, which must have and, been a real doozy. It must have had. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. The malignant narcissist is the, is the top of the scale. When they I mean, say the word like, malignant, malignant, what does malignant mean? Um, because they have no remorse and no ah. empathy, and so they can hurt without any concern whatsoever, right? And that's why he's always name calling and right. and all of that. You know, I've, I, you know, I'm always saying that um, w- that that he would be speaking the truth if he changed his pronouns from instead the- of. Instead of you, he, yeah. she, they, if it were I, me, mine, yeah. if you take every single one of his statements when he's talking around to someone else and just switch the pronouns, you'll understand that he's talking about himself. Yeah, and but it, it's so pr- pr- uh, it's so pronounced. Like it's you don't even have to finagle much. It, it's 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 almost right. cartoonishly that way. Um, when what are the most fulfilling moments when you're working with a client? Is it when something kind of clicks, or is it? When do you like, wow, this is what it's all about? Every single session. That's amazing. That's great. Every single session. Yeah. Um, You know, I, first of all, I love this work. I love my work. I worked for 12 years without taking regular days off. I kind of worked like seven days a week for 12 years just because I love the work so much. 
when I finally decided to, because my friends and peers were saying, this is insane. You need to start taking yeah. some time for yourself. So I took two days off, you know, like a, a weekend. Yeah. And I felt like I was semi-retired. Um, but no, every single session, because, um, I am witnessing shift and transformation in every single session. That's awesome. How can people sort of explore if this might be right for them? This kind of well, work? I I offer twenty minute consultation. Okay, cool. Um, so they can certainly you know nice. um, set up a time and we can chat about it. Right. Um, my website is a great resource. I've nice. got tons of video and content on there. Um, I've got a YouTube channel with all my videos. All my videos aren't on my website, but um, right. you know a lot of information there. Um, Peter Levine, who you know developed this work, Dr. Peter Levine. Um, he has a great book called Waking the Tiger, and that's kind of a primer for um, the layperson. Right, I have that how book. To look at, yeah. How to look at trauma from, you know, a physiological uh, perspective. Yeah, it certainly unlocked something for me when I was, when I was in the thick of it. Um, you're working on a book. I'm working on a book. What can you tell us about it? Um, it's called I Cried All the Way to Happy Hour. Nice. Uh, trauma Survivor's Guide to Profound and Long-Lasting Healing. Uh, it's a bit of a um, healing memoir in that I'm using my own story to illustrate things throughout. Um, but the main focus is to help people um, change the focus of the lens of how they're looking at trauma. Because currently today, Western allopathic medicine still looks at trauma as a psychological disorder, and they're trying to treat it with psychology and with meds. Right. That was sort of my um, path, my journey of like, this wasn't... This isn't right. helping. Right. Um, you know, it's funny. I had a client of mine recently sat next to a psychiatrist on a plane. who was he was retired. The psychiatrist was retired, but he was on his way to a symposium in the you know for the field of psychiatry because the field of psychiatry is at this crossroads, as he explained to my client, um, that for the last ten years there really hasn't been any advancements, and yet there's been an, a, a you know an enormous amount of research. Uh, and looking at PTSD because of all the, you know, the work with the vets, um, right. et cetera, coming out of, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera. And what they have determined is that it's not working. The field of psychiatry is self-checking and they're saying what we're doing isn't working. It's not helping. It's not helping, helping these people. Yeah. And talk therapy isn't helping. Right. Right. And so that's why there's so much attention right now on working with anxiety, panic, trauma of all kinds um, through uh, uh, the somatic realm. So really kind of looking at the at the body piece. Have you worked with have you worked with many veterans? People have been in well, wars? I haven't worked with many. I've certainly worked with several. Um, there are difficult to work with because they don't want to they don't want to i hate to say it they don't want to pay um because they want the u.s government to as the u.s government should yes um you know the u.s government should pay for their treatment yes um and the the you know the um um veterans organizations uh are still in the western allopathic mindset of trying to treat it with psychology, psychiatry, and medication. And so they're having a difficult time kind of seeking help outside of the system. Yeah, that's too bad. Um, but, I, yeah. but, I, but I understand that. Is there a difference in your work between somebody who had something physically violent happen randomly, like a car wreck, mm -hmm. versus somebody mm -hmm. who was part of a situation that ended up being traumatizing, but they were a party in it? A relationship right. or a work right. situation or something like that. Is there a difference? Massive difference. So there, there's a big difference intrinsically in what we call big T traumas. Things right. like car wrecks or being robbed or right. raped or, you know, beaten or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, then there's little T traumas like neglect, right? Death by a thousand paper cuts. Right. You know, verbal abuse right those kinds of things um and when there is shock trauma uh like a car wreck right there's a difference in there as to whether or not you see it coming or you're blindsided oh interesting right yeah so i was blindsided 
right? I didn't see it coming. I didn't know what was happening. Right. You know, I couldn't figure out what was happening until my car was already rolling. Oh gosh. Okay. Right? Yeah. It had already gone end over end and I still didn't know what was happening, but it right. wasn't until it was rolling when I started to put it together, you know? Um, and, and, and those, those blindsided moments, it's called high intensity global activation. So our bodies try to retract into the center point, right? So we try to get as small as possible physically to protect ourselves. Right. And so there's, you know, so there's a massive constriction, you know, and, and retraction that goes on physiologically. Um, so that's one major, one major difference. Um, but let's take a look at COVID-19, shall we? Yeah. So I'm getting ready to do a series of things in regard to COVID-19. The next three Saturdays, uh, Brett and Sheila and I are holding three and a half hour free webinars for people in the field on how to help themselves and their clients in COVID-19, um, looking at healthy shame and embodiment and how important um, uh, that is in dealing with what's going on. But um, And then I'm going to be doing some just open groups, uh, free to anyone. It's Q&A. People can ask me questions. I'll share tools and skills and resources to help people that are struggling and feeling the anxiety or feeling panic or you know, all of that. But let's look at what's happening physiologically here because it's two different things. How we're thinking about all of this, how we're processing all of this cognitively may be very different than how we're how our bodies are reacting and responding to it. Right. right. Because your lower brain where uh, is our early detection warning system, right? It's the freeze flight fight mechanism. So our lower brain, it doesn't have thought, word, or reason. It can't conceptualize. That's all higher brain function. And so the lower brain doesn't know the difference between perception and reality. And it is an information collector. It collects information through the five senses, through our imagination of what we imagine about the future and from our memories and from what we're currently thinking about. Right. So the lower brain takes all that information as if it's real and it's happening now. Okay. So here we have COVID-19. What's happening from a lower brain perspective, from a trauma practitioner's perspective, um, we are all under inescapable attack from an invisible assailant and it's not localized it's global so the so there's an attack on humanity yes from an invisible assailant that we don't know we can't we can't see it we don't know when we're at risk right so if we touch something or we walk through you know, someone's cough from five minutes ago, you know, right. we, we, there's nowhere safe outside. Right. right? Um, now couple that with horror because we're witnessing this horror that's happening across the planet. You know, we're, we're in the news feeds, we're, you know, on social media, we're getting all of this information about all of these horrific things that are happening and we're coping with all of it in isolation. Yeah. And isolation is the is the worst experience for a human being because we're hardwired for human engagement, belonging and connection. Right. And so um, this isolation piece is really kind of fascinating because two things are happening. There are those of us who are truly isolated, meaning on our own. Right. And then there are those of us who are isolated within our group, within our tribe, whether that's a family or a roommate or whatever. Right. So. Um, me personally, I'm in the isolation place, right? So I went without physical touch for three weeks, right? Then, um, someone who is in group, who's in family, right? These parents are now discovering that they have to parent, <laughs> they, have yeah. to, they have to educate, they have to entertain, they have to feed. Right. And so <clears throat> all that, you know, so, so, and, and, and shame is coming up for them because they may not feel like they're doing a good job. Right. Right. Or they're resentful that they're having to do it. Right. They're finding that they're, that, you know, their kids are driving them crazy. Right. right? 
Um, then there's all these relationships that prior to this event may have been rocky and now they're stuck quarantined together. Yeah. Right. And so we're going to see, um, more than likely a lot of filings for divorce after this. Right. Um, we're also probably going to see a lot of alcoholism. Um, we're probably also going to see, um, a lot of people coming out of this being much better cooks than they ever were. Right. So there's a lot of, there's going to be. The the, yeah. the, the, the the ramifications are are vast. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And so you know our system response, our body response, may be different than how we're actually coping with it intellectually. Yeah. Right. And then a lot of times, you know, um, we may be uh, unable to uh, exercise our normal defense mechanisms or coping strategies like distraction, right? right? So we can't get busy. We can't lose ourselves in our work. You know, yeah. there's a lot of people have lost their jobs so they can't go to work, right? Um, so we're having to face ourselves in a different way than we have ever had to. And we don't have our coping mechanisms um, available to us or we're trying or we're finding new coping mechanisms, which may end up being food or alcohol and, you know, yeah. things like that. And for the people, get out of hand. and for the people in the front lines, the trauma that they're experiencing now, and the way that's going to play out for the rest of their lives. Or, yeah, yeah, I just read an article um, yesterday that was talking about the you know the emergency workers and the the frontline nurses and doctors and that kind of thing are going to come out. You know, are most likely many of them are going to come out on the other side of this traumatized um, and you know suffering from PTSD because of the horror. You know, they're yeah. in the battlefield all day every day and you know ridiculously long shifts with very little sleep very little support and also not feeling safe because they don't have their ppes and they're having to reuse masks and you know all of, all of, that. All of that and also feeling that. that they are they have some responsibility in what's happening or i could have done that with that person or why didn't i do this or Absolutely. why didn't i say that like to feel Absolutely. like you had a part in your trauma is a is a, is another aspect of it i think that, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And there's a shame piece in there, too. Yeah. Right? I should have done this. I didn't do that. Or if I were more like this. Um, the, the Zoom thing that you said that was for anybody, uh, how can people right. learn about that? Um, I'm going to uh, – I'm, I'm hoping to have the first one on Tuesday. Okay. I've been having, I've been having some, uh, you know – marketing and tech technology issues, um, but I'm hoping to get it up by Tuesday. Um, you know, I, I will have all of this kind of content on my website. For so people sure. just go to your website. Yeah. Go to my website. And then here's something else I want to let everybody know about too, is that I've created a group on Facebook called Safe Zone. And it's a place where we can engage in social media without being inundated with the fear the hatred, the arguing and bickering, the politics, the, the you know political bashing, you know the misinformation, all of that. So Safe Zone is a place where we can find resources and community, and people can share skills and tools and story of how they're coping and how they're managing, and lots of humor um, and all of that. So, um, you know, anybody is, uh, you know, can send me a friend request to Brian Mahan on Facebook. Um, and then, um, they're welcome to come in and, uh, have a safe place on Facebook where I'll also make, be making the announcements of the stuff that I'm doing. Um, but we have a great, you know, resource list in there right now of, you know, how to file for unemployment, how to apply for your SBA loan, um, you know, how to get your, your, your stimulus check, you know, um, through the IRS and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's great. Um, that's great yeah, to so have really, sort of a, a place. Yeah. yeah. I'm really happy and proud of that. And, you know, and we've got about 250 people in it, um, so far and everybody is just loving it and everybody's just engaging in the most beautiful and kind ways. And there's been a couple of times where there's been some heat and some bickering that sure. started to happen. And so I had to kind of put a kibosh on that and remind people that, um, this is not the place for that. All opinions are welcome. All points of view are welcome. Uh, anyone's welcome to comment about the, uh, the the information, but not about the messenger. Yeah, I like that. And, yeah. um, I have two questions left that I want to ask. One of them is a big question, and maybe it's a whole other topic, but it's something that occurs to me. And you can just you can you can respond how you will. How is somatic experience, the work that you do, and these issues connected to sexuality, literally sex? 
touch. Um, are is there overlap? Oh my god, yes. It feels like that's <laughs> a whole other, you know, two-year course. I mean, even even in just in working with shame, we do a two-day training on sex and sexuality. Right. Um, you know, and then we do another two-day training on shame and couples. Yeah. You know, and so so those pieces are are in there, and so you know that's. Uh, you know what? What is that like? Uh, Thirty some hours of training, right. just on that realm. But there are connections um, between those two well, ideas. Absolutely, because lower brain, you know, which is where the disorganization, dysregulation occurs in traumatic, you know, events. Right. Um, freeze, flight, fight, fornicate, and feed. So yes, yeah, sex and sexuality, major player in there, um, and then of course the shame piece, um, double bound. With all of that, yeah. Right. So before we wrap it up, um, tell people again about your website. It's brianmahan.com. It's actually briandmahan.com. So B-R-I-A-N, D is in Douglas. Nice. Mahan, M is in Mary, A is in Apple, H is in Harry, A is in Apple, N is in Nancy. Notice how I got Mary and Nancy in there. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Briandmahan.com. Facebook, you can search for Safe Zone. There are several, um, but look for the one with my name attached to it or send me a friend request uh, to Brian Mayhem. Um, and just FYI, if you're looking for me on Facebook, I have two profiles. One is Uber Personal. That has my middle name in it. Um, so um, at this point in time, um, I'm holding that space. Sure. I'm sacred and, and private. So reach out to me on Brian Mayhem um, on Facebook. And, um, yeah, so I uh, would love to uh, have everybody come and join on the, the group hangout, hopefully on Tuesday. Yeah. And um, and come come and hang out and save some. See what it's all about. And, and if anybody wants, uh, you know, to chat with me directly, they can um, go to my website and book a 20-minute consultation, and uh, we can go from there. I love it. Well, you certainly helped me a lot when I was in the thick of it, and I think the work that you do is really interesting and important and groundbreaking and and new in a way. I mean, at least from the outsider's point of view. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I will say it's been around for about thirty or forty years. Yeah, right. It's reaching um, you know a watershed moment right you know, uh, in the last few years, uh, but it's taught in one hundred and twenty-five countries in twenty-five languages. Nice. So yeah, so it is you know a worldwide recognized approach to um, healing trauma. Love it. Um, last question. Do you ever think about what your life would be like if that car wreck hadn't happened? All the time. Not all the time. But yeah, um, I look at the car wreck as the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. It, it led um, you to everything in your life, yeah? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I don't know whether or not I would still be pursuing acting. I don't know whether or not, I, you know, I certainly don't know whether or not I'd still be a massage therapist. You know, I have no idea. I have no idea where I'd be, what I'd be doing. I do know that I never thought in a million years I'd be doing what I'm doing, loving what I'm doing to the way in which that I am, doing it on the scale in which I am. I mean, just all of it just completely boggles my mind. That car wreck was just for me. Right. And you're, and you're doing what you're, is there a feeling of, I'm, this is what I'm meant to be doing. I am the person oh, that I was meant to be. Yeah, it, right. you know, it pulled together all the pieces for me. That's awesome. Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time. I mean, I got a lot out of this conversation in terms of my own coping, and um, I think it's awesome what you do. So, thank uh, you. Thank you. It's so good to see you. You as and, well. And talk to you. Okay. <laughs> Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks again to Brian Mahan for taking the time to chat with us. Okay, so this happened. Not that much happened. Um, like all of you, I've been sort of sheltering at home, but I will say that the, the virtual game nights have really taken off. We've done one almost every night. The other day, we had three generations of one family. Uh, the youngest player was 10 years old, and the, all the way up to grandparents, and they were well, somewhere in Canada, somewhere in the U.S., and I was kind of nervous about doing younger people, kids and stuff, and they're hilarious. They're so much fun, and they grasp the game really well. The 10-year-old was like, trying to game the system. He was working every angle and it was just really hilarious. So um, we're just really excited about how um, all kinds of different people are benefiting from this and enjoying it. And uh, we're making a little money and it's, it's just, it's just nice. Um, what else? I watched that Kate Blanchett show. I'm into it. Uh, 
that's about it. <laughs> so uh, I've been doing a lot of puzzles. I'm into that, jigsaw puzzles, and um, staying pretty busy. So um, hopefully I'll have some more fun interviews coming your way. And thank you always for listening and for your support. And we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. <laughs>